0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zelot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The NCBC has published a new book on the Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying. The title of the book is, appropriately, The Art of Dying, A New Annotated Translation and its author is Brother Columba Thomas, O.P. That's the Dominicans. The book is available on our website. Please go to ncbcenter.org and click on the red shop button in the upper right-hand corner. Brother Columba joins me today to discuss what the Ars Moriendi is, the lessons it contains, and why this medieval writing holds great relevance and value for us today. Brother Columba Thomas, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. All right. So as our listeners know, uh, for every new guest, which you are, I ask you to please tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, work experience, leading up to actually the work you're doing now.
1: Okay, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a Dominican religious, and I'm studying for the priesthood currently in Washington, D.C. at the Dominican House of Studies. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Dominican Order, we are the Order of Preachers. And I'm that's called, the OP. That's right, the OP. And I'm a religious because I'm in vows. And actually, just this past year, I made solemn vows, which means it's permanent.
0: Congratulations.
1: And less than two years from now, God willing, I'll be ordained to the priesthood. So I'm very excited about that. And I am finishing up my preparations for that over the next couple of years. Before I joined the Dominicans in 2016, I trained as a physician in internal medicine, and I had specific interests in geriatrics and end-of-life care, and I trained as both a clinician and a researcher. And it was when I was studying medicine in New Haven that I came across the Dominicans at St. Mary's, and gradually over time, came to realize that God was calling me to join the Dominicans and to study for the priesthood. So I did that, and I've been with the Dominicans ever since.
0: So you are a medical doctor. That's right. I just wonder, have you kept up your license? Uh, I to have,
1: practice? yeah. Okay. The, the order has been very supportive, such that I have been able to keep my license active during this whole time. And I've also been able, on occasion, to put together some formal clinical work uh, over the years just to kind of keep my skills up and uh, to just keep doors open as much as possible.
0: Yeah. yeah. I was just wondering if you could tell us when when did you graduate from medical school and then when did you um, enter the Dominican order?
1: Yeah. So, I graduated from medical school in 2012 and then immediately went into residency in internal medicine primary care, And that was a three year residency for the main portion. And then I did a chief resident year at the end of that. And then that brought me basically to 2016 when I was able to join the Dominicans. So just as I finished my residency training, then I joined the the Dominicans.
0: Okay. So in in addition to studying for the priesthood, which is a full-time job in itself, I'm sure, uh, what other responsibilities do you have at the Dominican House of Studies?
1: So first and foremost, I should mention our community prayer, which really the whole day is structured around and which serves as a basis for all the work that we do. We also have private prayer and meditation, as well as community meals, and then Various local ministries that we do that the student brothers do during the academic terms. And then we also have specific house responsibilities. And currently, I'm one of the house organists and also the infirmarian, which is the student
0: brother who does sick calls. That makes quite sense. naturally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, is there, and I always ask this question, and, and you sort of kind of answered it already, but I'm, I'm going to ask it as well is there a typical day for you? I mean, obviously you, it's, it's, you said your day is, revolves around the prayer life of the community and the community work, but it, is a day typical um, for yeah, you? Yeah, I would or... say
1: so because during the academic term, we have a set course schedule and a set ministry schedule. So I think from week to week, there's a lot of consistency there. And a typical day for me would start with morning prayer, followed by mass with the community, and then breakfast. And during the academic term, there would be classes in the morning. At noon, we have rosary, midday prayer, and then lunch together. And then usually in the afternoon, there's classes as well. And between the morning and afternoon, there's usually a couple of hours at least that are more flexible and that I can devote to reading for classes or working on papers or even squeezing in a little bit of exercise or something like that. And then late in the afternoon, I do my private meditation. And then we have community office of readings and Vespers followed by dinner. And then usually there's a couple of free hours after dinner. And then the last scheduled thing for the day is Compline or night prayer after which the student brothers get ready to go to bed. So that's a pretty typical day for me. There are there can be variations from day to day, but that that's the pretty standard
0: thing. Well, this is the first time in 70 some odd episodes of Bioethics on Air that someone actually said, yes, there is a typical day. Most people <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's religious life for you. So that's
1: right, and I think that that's really important for our formation as well. That we have some consistency, and the the emphasis is really on focusing on our relationship with God and growing in virtue um, with God's help, and just preparing ourselves for what can be a very difficult uh, apostolate as we leave the house of studies. Yeah.
0: All right. So let's uh, let's get into the book. So. Brother Columba, can you tell us, first off, what is the Ars Moriendi? why was it written, and maybe talk a little bit about the, the long version versus the short version, and who's it intended for?
1: Sure. So as you mentioned in your introduction, the Ars Moriendi means the art of dying. It's a Latin term, and it's the name of a text that was developed in the late Middle Ages the 15th century specifically, and it was designed to help equip Christians for death and dying. And this work became very popular in its day and was distributed throughout Europe and was so influential that it even sparked an entire genre of art of dying literature. So when you hear the term, the art of dying, It refers both to that original work from the late Middle Ages, as well as the whole genre of literature that has sort of continued over the centuries. The original text probably arose in the context of the Council of Constance, which was a church council that focused on reform and teaching Catholics the basics of the faith and encouraging devout Christian living. And another important historical piece related to this is that the bubonic plague was a recurrent problem in Europe during that time. And with that, there was more limited access to priests and the sacraments, and people generally needed more guidance uh, as they prepared for death. And you mentioned that there's a longer and a shorter version of the Ars Moriendi, and those more or less circulated simultaneously Uh, But it's clear from the evidence that the the longer version came first, and then it was followed by the shorter version, which was an abridgment that was designed to accompany illustrations. And so for the sake of this translation project that I did, I chose the shorter version for a number of reasons, uh, but most of all because it very concisely and clearly laid out all the main points from the longer version um, and also, I thought it would just be more easily accessible to people and it could more easily serve as a reference for people. Uh, the reason that we know that the original Ars Moriendi was intended for a, a general audience is because the text itself really points that out. It's not giving specific instructions to priests on how to care for and minister to the dying but rather it's giving instructions to the Christian faithful about the need to call for a priest, about the need to receive the sacraments and to receive them well, and to give them all sorts of guidance about the kinds of challenges that they might face and some advice uh, drawing upon the church's tradition about how to overcome those challenges. And so I felt that this work very clearly lays out the main points that people need to understand in a way that's very accessible. And, and so um, I think even though it was geared towards an audience in the 15th century, the principles still apply. And these truths that the church has handed down over the centuries certainly still apply today.
0: Yeah. So Brother Columba, correct me if I'm wrong, the the book is the Ars a uh, New Annotated Translation is really geared towards the faithful rather than towards the clergy.
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, certainly priests and chaplains could use this work as a reference and perhaps consider recommending it to those that they serve. But yes, this text is directly aimed at the Christian faithful in general, there's really no expertise or uh, previous training required for having access to this work.
0: Right. Sounds good. All right. So uh, the big question we always ask is why. why? Why did you set out to do this project of translating and editing the, the Ars Moriandi?
1: Sure. I've been interested in the care of the dying for a very long time now. I would say ever since the beginning of medical school. And the first time that I learned about the Ars Moriendi text specifically and became very interested in it was in a church history class a couple of years ago. We were reading a book by an Irish historian, Eamon Duffy, called The Stripping of the Altars, and he devotes a large section of that book to a discussion of the Ars Moriendi and its influence at the time. And... In general, the importance of devout Christian living in that particular time period, uh, that there was a great emphasis placed on that in the church, and there's lots of evidence among the faithful in the texts that we have that are surviving that this was very much on people's minds. And that really surprised me. And so I became more interested in studying the Ars Moriendi only to find that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find a translation of it in modern English. And so I think that actually goes a long way in explaining why most people don't know very much about this work, even if they are familiar with the, the genre and maybe have seen more recent books that have been published that have a title like that, like The Art of Dying or something very similar. And so after I realized that this text is simply not available to people, it led me to do even more research. And then last summer when I was doing an internship with the National Catholic Bioethics Center, um, I brought up with the publications team, uh, in particular, Ted Furton, this idea that I would like to do research on the Ars Moriendi. And after he read some about it, uh, excuse me, after he read a little bit about this, Uh, we had another conversation and he recommended that actually doing a translation of this would be really helpful and potentially would have very broad interest. And so we set to work on that. And so I did research on the background and wrote an article on the background and development and contents of the Ars Moriandi, but also worked on an annotated translation, which is the publication that's coming out.
0: Yeah, and the essay that you wrote was in uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, I believe, wasn't it? That's
1: right, in the winter 2020 edition.
0: Yeah, so just relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Brother Columba, talk a bit about the process involved, both from your end and from the side of our publications team in, in getting this work to completion.
1: Sure. So there were a number of steps involved in developing this annotated translation, and many of the things I just ended up having to sort of learn as I went along, but uh, I had already studied Latin and um, have some competency in translating it into English, but I also had just tremendous support from various people in doing this. And in particular, I'd like to thank Sister Maria Kylie, who's one of my professors at the Dominican House of Studies, and she's a Benedictine religious and quite expert in doing liturgical translations, and she's a classicist as well. And so she and I worked together to sort of smooth out the translation and make it as professional as possible. But before I could do that, the first challenge really was in identifying the earliest manuscripts for the shorter version of the Ars Moriendi. And thankfully, in recent years, more and more old manuscripts are being digitized and are available online for free through various libraries around the world. And so I was able to access some of the earliest manuscripts of the shorter version of the Ars Moriendi, to study those, to transcribe that into a Latin text, and then to translate that into English. And then at the same time, I did a lot of research to trace down the sources that were referred to in the text itself. So for example, if there's a quote attributed to Augustine, I tried to identify exactly where that came from, the text from Augustine in a critical edition. And to confirm that and then to write in the annotations, a citation basically, and an explanation of the theological and pastoral content as well. So I put a lot of effort into just very closely studying the text, its sources, and its applications, and sort of just putting it in the context of the whole tradition of the church. Right.
0: Yeah. Talk a little bit about the uh, the the illustrations or the pictures, if yes. you could.
1: So those illustrations, you could say, have had a life of their own and they've been of interest to art historians because they're woodblock prints. And that was a technology that developed and was popular around the mid 15th century. But at the same time, the printing press was being developed. So the printing press sort of surpassed the other technologies that were in use and became the standard. But at that particular time, uh, woodblock printing was in vogue. And so the illustrations that were designed to accompany this text were done using woodblock prints. And so those have become famous because a lot of people are simply interested in them as works of art. But they were designed to very clearly and accurately convey the contents of the text. I like to think of it as being like the stained glass windows from Gothic cathedrals, that for those who could not read, a lot of the uh, basics of the faith were conveyed through the stained glass windows so that people could learn things about the faith that way. And it would reinforce the, the basics of the faith for everyone who is in the cathedral. And so the text of the Ars Moriendi points out specifically that the illustrations are meant to help those who could not read, but also to reinforce the contents for those who could. And that's another reason that we can be confident that this was really directed at a very general audience with the intention of uh, reaching as many people as possible.
0: Right. So these illustrations, just just to, to, to get it clear in my head, these illustrations are in the original Ars Moriendi. That's right. Are they in the the long version, the short version, or both? They're in
1: the short version, but not the long version, yes. And they specifically were designed to accompany the central portion of the shorter version, which covers the temptations. So there's a series of five temptations or common struggles or interior challenges that people face as they approach death, and then a series of replies from an angel offering encouragement and drawing upon the tradition of the church to help overcome those temptations. And so these illustrations are conveying that material in a very detailed fashion, in a way that really tells a story.
0: And you've included, um, I guess, representations of these woodblock Mm -hmm. illustrations in... Uh, the new book that's that's coming up. Yes,
1: the publications team worked very hard to basically develop exact reproductions of these original illustrations and also to convey this in the original format, so to speak, so that there would be a page of text on one side and then an illustration on the opposing page so that the text and illustration serve as a mirror of each other. And even the text points that out. And that's why I felt that it was so important for us to preserve the original format, because even the text says that there's text on one side and an illustration on the other. And so I was very, very grateful to the publications team that they put so much work into this to make sure that this would be possible. And I hope that our readers really appreciate that as
0: well. Yeah, that was one of the things, um, and, and I'm at a bit of an advantage here because I've seen an advanced copy of the book, <laughs> which I know, brother, at this point, when we're as we're recording this podcast, you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> but, I, but I was really struck at the number of illustrations uh, that are in there. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable, actually.
1: Yes. I think there's a total of 11 illustrations, so one for each of the temptations and replies from an angel, and then a concluding illustration as well. But yes, they are very fascinating, and you could spend a lot of time just looking at the details and appreciating how they um, sort of reflect the contents of the text.
0: Yeah, very good. All right, so let's like, let's change gears a bit. Um, so, brother, can you compare for us the medieval Catholic Church's concern with death and helping people to properly prepare for death with that of our modern culture? So, what's similar and what's different? Sure.
1: I think that's a very good question. And I also think it's a very difficult question to answer well, because <laughs> the more I study this, the more I realize how much there is in common, really, between the church of the Middle Ages and the church today. And that we there's a lot of overlap with the challenges that we face and the opportunities that we have. Uh, but one thing I want to make clear from the get-go is that the church has always been Concerned with the reality of the death and with helping people to prepare properly for death. So that has been a constant throughout. Another thing that has not changed fundamentally from the Middle Ages to the present is that there's a danger of focusing so much on the health of the body that the dying person may end up neglecting the health of the soul. And we talk so much about the medicalization of dying today and how that can take our focus away from the soul and contemporary healthcare. But I was actually very intrigued to find in the text of the Ars Moriendi itself, that there's evidence of something similar going on even at that time. And we might find this surprising today, but there's an instruction in the Ars Moriendi text that a physician is not to intervene on a dying patient without first being seen by a member of the clergy. Presumably, that was because of the danger of a swift and unexpected death at the hands of a physician. But we do sort of have a similar concern sometimes today, especially if people are being prepared to go off for a major surgery or something like that. It's it's a point of emphasis to make sure that you've received the sacraments and that you're prepared for anything that could happen. Right.
0: I'm just interested so, as a as a as a physician. How does uh, I I was just chuckling as as you were saying. You know, the physician needs to to speak to the to the minister, <laughs> or the pastor, or not do anything until they spoke it to the minister and the pastor. Right? How does how does that um, how does that strike you as a physician?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that gives me a little bit of pause, but I think it also leads me to distinguish between the types of interventions that might happen. In healthcare that carry great risk, and we acknowledge that that is the case, versus the kinds of interventions that are more directed perhaps at uh, getting symptoms under control or taking care of something that's a little bit uh, more straightforward and can be easily addressed and doesn't seem to have as much risk associated with it. So I think that we can make those distinctions. But I do think there are situations today in which we would all recognize that there is significant risk involved and people should have things in order before they go off to a a risky procedure or something like that. So I think we can all relate to that for sure. Just to finish the the question that you asked me initially, this kind of brings me to some of the differences between the Middle Mm -hmm. Ages and today. And I think one key difference has to do with how prominent the reality of death is in people's minds and how close they perceive it to be. And so I think in the Middle Ages, death in general was a much closer reality for people, whereas today we have the temptation to think that it's very far away and that there are so many safety nets available to us. And I think that's in large part because of The rise of technology and the advancements in medicine that so often people may develop a serious illness and then find that with the right interventions, we can cure that illness or at least help them to improve such that they're stabilized and can continue to live for months or years, even. And so I think people feel that death is not as close of a reality and it's much more tempting to put off preparing for death and thinking about death as something that is inevitable and that will happen for all of us. So I think that is a key difference. And you can see that difference, I think, depicted in the Ars Moriendi, that it's sort of taken for granted that death is something that is on people's minds and that that needs to be contended with of course, there's al- there's always going to be examples of people who are able to deny that reality and sort of put things off. And so that's always been true. But I think particularly today, we have a special temptation to think this doesn't apply to me and I'm going to have more chances. I just need additional medical interventions or whatever. So I think that is something that we need to particularly recognize today and to think about how to to overcome.
0: Yeah. All right, so let's let's delve into the text itself a bit. Um, so brother, can you identify and give us a brief explanation of the six parts or the six chapters of the Ars Moriendi?
1: Sure. And just to be clear, the six chapters apply to the longer text okay. of the Ars Moriendi. Right. so not the shorter one that we are publishing as an annotated translation but I think it's still helpful to look at the organization of the original six chapters because they lay out the main contents that are still contained in the shorter version as well, but just in three shorter sections. And so the the contents of the six chapters are as follows. And the first chapter covers a general overview of the art of dying, and also talks about the reality of death and the general need to prepare for death. And in particular, I find it interesting that the text recommends that everyone should read this and reflect regularly on the the reality of their eventual death. So this is not just for people who are seriously ill and realize that they are coming close to dying, but really it's for everyone because this is at the heart of Christian living that we realize that Death will come, but also that Christ has overcome death and that we anticipate eternal life. The second chapter focuses on the common temptations faced by the dying that I mentioned earlier, as well as remedies for overcoming them. And that actually becomes the central portion of the shorter Ars Moriendi. And then the third chapter gives a series of questions on the articles of the faith so that people can examine themselves and also profess the basics of the faith. There's a great emphasis on the need to just be clear about the faith that has been handed on to us through the church, uh, because these are just very central to the realities of our salvation. The fourth chapter gives a series of reflections on the example of Christ on the cross and also offers prayers for assistance for the dying. Chapter five gives a series of instructions for the dying. So it's a little more practically oriented and also instructions for those caring for the dying. And then finally, chapter six contains liturgical prayers that can be said over the dying by those caring for them. So basically the shorter version is a condensed version of all of these things. The second chapter from the longer version becomes the main portion of the shorter Ars Moriendi, And then chapters one and three through six are condensed into an introduction and conclusion section that just much more concisely lay out these main principles. But really the main points are all there in the shorter version. So yeah. specifically talking about the temptations.
0: I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to come back to those because those, those are really interesting to
1: sure. me. Sure. Yeah. So the easiest way of looking at this is that the temptations are stated in terms of virtues and vices. And the first three temptations are against faith, hope, and charity which as many of you know, are the theological virtues because they're all about our relationship with God, about coming to know and to love God. And so as the text says, the devil realizes how important these virtues are for our salvation. And so that's what he particularly focuses on, tempting us to resist and reject these and in a turn to reject God as well. And so in response to each of these temptations, an angel offers advice and encouragement. There are quotations from scripture, from the fathers of the church, and also common sense advice in helping the person to contend with these temptations. And then the fourth and the fifth temptations have to do with basic vices that may tempt a person. So pride, which leads a person to resist or reject God. And greed, which leads a person to cling to things of the world, and so in turn to reject God as well.
0: Yeah, very good. Yeah, I I, I remember looking over uh, parts of the Ars Moriandi and that, and that's the section that just grabbed me because, uh, well, maybe I I see my well, I know I see myself in those, but we don't <laughs> we don't need to go and in, go into detail about that. So. Um, Brother, the, the Ars Moriende also lists six statements or, quote, things that are necessary for salvation. And, and these are really interesting as well, too. And what I'll do is I'll just briefly uh, identify them. And I was wondering if you could, you could comment on them. Sure. Okay. So statement number one is, quote, he should believe, as a faithful Christian does, and even rejoice that he will die in the faith of Christ and the church united with them in obedience, unquote. Your comments.
1: Yes. So this is zeroing in on the importance of the virtue of faith, which I just discussed as um, in the section related to the temptations. And so this is specifically pointing out that Christ and the church are inseparable, and it's through Christ Excuse me. And it's through the church that we are saved in Christ. So this is pointing out something that's very fundamental to our faith as Christians.
0: Yeah, I really love the word. And I, in, in my notes here, I underlined the word rejoice, mm-hmm. uh, that we should rejoice in this. And that's really the Christian message. And I, I, I just thinking about the world that we live in, that we do. Everything we can to avoid death, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we don't want to talk about death. We do everything we can to avoid it. You know, the medical technology is going to save me, but really the Christian message is, hey, as you said before, we're all going to die. And in fact, we should rejoice in the fact that, um, that you know, if we die in, in the faith of Christ and, you know, the faith as expressed uh, through the church, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a death is a doorway to eternal life with God. And that's why right. why wouldn't you rejoice in that?
1: Yes, and this is why we call it the good news of the gospel. Yes, we should all rejoice in this reality. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right, so statement number two, or, or the second of the six statements of things necessary for salvation, quote, he should recognize that he has gravely offended God and grieve because of this. Okay, so now the rejoicing from number one comes into the reality of number two. So can you uh, comment on the second Statement.
1: Sure. So this touches upon an important theme in the Ars Moriendi, which is our need for God's mercy. And so that involves recognizing that we have sinned and also having confidence in the power of Christ's passion to restore us to grace. So this really leads us to the element of hope that is also so central to the Christian life and is also the second theological virtue that I mentioned before, the virtue of hope. Um, It's very important for us to recognize that it's a serious mistake to despair of our sins, especially as death approaches, rather than to have hope in God's mercy and the promise of salvation. And it is a very common temptation for people as they are approaching death, that they may think that some of the sins that they've committed are just beyond forgiveness that God will not forgive them; that God's mercy is not on offered to them for that specific thing, and this is a, a real temptation that the devil can latch onto for, cer- for certain. Um, but it, it can be so helpful for people to be encouraged and to realize that actually, no, there is no sin that a human being can commit that God is not able to forgive.
0: Yeah. Very well stated. All right. Statement number three, quote, he should resolve that if he recovers, he will amend his ways and never sin again, unquote.
1: Yes. Again, this touches upon the theological virtue of hope, because with healing and restoration and being elevated again in grace and the grace of Christ, that comes with a transformation. That is a transformation such that we are set aright and called to live in the truth. And there's a strong scriptural basis for this as well. So when Jesus shows mercy to the woman caught in adultery, for example, he says to her, go and sin no more. So with the forgiveness and mercy and healing, there's also this expectation and exhortation that she should go on and live righteously. And so we are called to the same.
0: Statement four, quote, he should forgive those who have offended him for the sake of God and ask forgiveness from those he has offended, unquote.
1: Yes, this is at the heart of the gospel that just as God has loved us first and shown us mercy, we are to love others and to show them mercy in turn. The Beatitudes certainly point this out, that blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And this is what the Christian looks what the Christian life looks like when it's elevated in charity. And so that actually brings us to the third theological virtue of charity.
0: Charity, yeah. All right, statement number five: quote, he should make restitution for the things he has taken, unquote.
1: Yes. So this reminds us that justice has not been done away with. And that God is both just and merciful, that these things are not in opposition to one another, despite what we might be tempted to think. Uh, So in justice, we are to give to others what is their due. And when we act mercifully towards others, we're not going against justice, but we're doing something more than justice. So it's important to keep justice in mind as well.
0: Yeah. And the last statement, quote, and I like this one as well. I like all of them. particularly (laughs) like this one. Quote, he should know that Christ died for him and that there is no other way he can be saved except by the merit of the passion of Christ, for which he should give thanks to God as much as possible. Unquote.
1: Yes. I think this very succinctly sums up the central message of the Ars Moriendi and the, the Christian art of dying at large. This is the key to our salvation with a focus on Christ's victory that he has already won for us, but it still must be obtained through Christ and the church for the salvation of souls. Yeah.
0: What great messages. I, and I do have to say that before we started talking about this podcast, and we've been talking about doing this for a number of months now, i never heard of the Ars Morian. Mm. But as I'm learning more about it and preparing for this podcast and reading your materials and just talking to you now, this is this is fascinating. I I, I can't wait to sit down and read the book.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think there's so much richness and depth, but it's also on an, another level, very basic and very straightforward. Um, so I think there's a really good balance here of something that can be very accessible to people, but also help enrich them in a number of ways.
0: Absolutely. All right. So we've talked about the text of the Ars Moriante. Let's kind of move into a maybe a practical application sure. of it. So, So brother, you, you focus your essentially your practical application of the Ars Moriendi today to the reception of the sacraments especially confession and i heard confession coming through very clearly in those six statements that we just talked about mm-hmm. but can you can you explain this
1: yes so the ars moriendi places great emphasis on the importance of receiving the sacraments of the church and doing so reverently and in faith the whole point of the sacraments is that Christ instituted them to continue his healing ministry in the church even after his ascension into heaven. The sacraments restore us to grace, and they enable us to be partakers in the divine life. In my experience, when people see patients that are dying, patients that are Catholic, their reflex reaction is to think that patient needs the sacrament of the sick or anointing. And that's a very good instinct. But the reality is that there are three sacraments of the church that are especially recommended to prepare those who are nearing the end of life. And these are penance, also called confession, anointing of the sick, and the Eucharist. In particular, confession is important for those who have been away from the church for a long time, or those who are aware of having committed grave sins and not having confessed them. So confession is what restores people to the life of grace, such that they can be well disposed to receive anointing of the sick and the Eucharist. And in this edition of the Ars Moriendi, I included a section in the appendix that provides an explanation and overview of the sacraments that people can use as a reference in navigating this, because it can be a little bit complicated and in understanding how these sacraments relate to each other and the order in which to best receive them. And I think this is important because there's so much richness and depth in the sacraments and their effectiveness does vary depending on our interior disposition. So that's something for people to keep in mind. And I I hope that people can have a, a more informed approach to this and make sure that dying patients are able to receive all of the resources that are available to them through the church.
0: Yeah. Oh boy, we could have a a, a very long discussion on on this, but well, mm-hmm. well, I'm gonna I'm gonna restrain myself. So, um, but but related to this, um, so in addition to the sacraments, which which you just mentioned, what. Practical application or applications does the Ars Moriandi have for contemporary end-of-life care and contemporary end-of-life decision-making? Now, these are issues we deal with the NCBC all the time through our consult line. But what what does the Ars Moriandi have to offer to, as I said, end-of-life care, end-of-life decision-making?
1: Thank you for asking this question, because I think it's a common conception among Catholics today that as long as the sacraments have been given, we have done our due diligence in helping our loved ones prepare for death. But the Ars Moriendi also contains a strong emphasis on personal devotion. And by that, I mean prayer and meditation. Family members and friends can actually do a lot to remind the dying person of this and also to pray with the dying person and encourage him or her. And the, the text of the Ars Moriendi even goes so far as to recommend that the dying person identify a relative or friend who can reliably assist in this regard. And so that means encouraging and exhorting the dying person to pray and meditate regularly, to keep their mind on the the basics of the faith and the promise of salvation, um, and to help them to overcome these various temptations and anxieties that can arise as a person prepares for death. So I would say, for the most part, there is a great emphasis on uh, personal devotion and prayer. Um, And of course, the Ars Moriendi was also written at a time when access to priests and the sacraments was much more limited, So there was a need to consider the possibility that a dying person may not even have the availability of the sacraments. And so this is addressed specifically in the text. And just to give you one example, in response to the temptation to despair, the angel brings up the possibility that a dying person may not be able to go to confession. In which case the angel says, it's important not to despair which would be to think that God could not possibly forgive these things, but rather to have inner contrition for all sins committed and to trust in God's mercy, to entrust oneself entirely to God and to remember that there is no sin so great that it could not be forgiven.
0: Yeah. I'm, uh, as you're, as you're saying that I'm thinking about our contemporary situation with COVID mm-hmm. and, and hopefully as we're, we're recording this on August 19th and, you know, we've hopefully we've been through the worst. We're hoping it doesn't get better, but, um, we've heard, and, and I know you have heard as well too, that Particularly during the, you know, the the spring and summer of 2020, there were many patients who were in hospitals and nursing homes who were dying and who weren't able to have access to the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you're saying it, it, it's not, well, it sounds as if uh, the Ars Moriendi, in, in a sense, was being kind of uh, kind of looking towards the future and 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 you know, and seeing, you know, seeing that these types of situations were going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about that, how the Ars Moriendi can be very helpful for uh, individuals and also loved ones of those individuals who are, um, who don't have or did not have access to a priest um, to receive the sacraments of the church before dying?
1: Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. I would say that we do have a temptation today to think that we will have access to a priest and the sacraments as long as the patient requests it in time. And in reality, that's not always the case. And so there is a need for backup guidance, you could say, and also guidance that applies even if the patient has access to the sacraments. And so I think this is an area where the Ars Moriendi is particularly strong, and an area that hasn't been focused as much on in more recent literature that's designed to help Catholics. So I could say I think that this this work does kind of fill a significant gap um, as far as reaching the faithful and instructing them on these things, in addition to calling for a priest and requesting the sacraments. So I think that is a real strength of the text. That not only was um, very important for the the day in which the text was written, but also applies today as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So as we come to the end of our interview, I'm I'd like to bring the bring the question to you personally. So, Brother Columba, you are preparing for the priesthood within the Dominican Order, as you said earlier. Hopefully, within about two years, if God willing, <laughs> you'll be ordained. And, uh, and then maybe you can come up to Philadelphia and celebrate mass for the NCBC. That would be- <laughs> sure. To do that. But with that in mind, how will your knowledge of and your academic work with the Ars Moriendi impact your ministry to people at end of life?
1: That's a great question. And I have some initial thoughts about that, but I would say that this is something that's just going to become more apparent to me over time. And so time will tell. But I think, first of all, this work has been very enriching for me, and it's helped me to understand more fully some of the common challenges that we face in helping people prepare for death and ways of overcoming them. I think the text very clearly lays out all the key principles that come into play. And of course, I think that's in large part owing to the fact that it was that the authors of this text drew upon the tradition of the church they were not just trying to reinvent the wheel and coming up with this but they were really drawing on the wisdom that has been consistent throughout the centuries and so they've laid out the important points that uh, that the faithful can benefit from in in preparing for death and so it's helpful for me to bear that in mind and also hopefully to be able to share that with others. And I think as I move forward in my ministry work, I'm going to continue to think about better and better ways of conveying these truths to others and and also benefiting from the feedback that I receive from people because I think as they read the work and as they apply this in their own lives, they can give me helpful feedback about what works well, what perhaps doesn't work as well, and that we can just continue to move forward. Because I think this is a good starting point uh, to, to um, publish this new annotated translation of the Ars Moriendi text. And I think there's still room for growth. And I'm really excited about additional possibilities for just conveying these basic truths to the faithful. Yeah.
0: What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today?
1: I think I'd like to underscore one of the important messages of the Ars Moriendi, which is that this text is not simply for those who are imminently dying, and it's not simply for those who are facing illness, but it's something that we should be in the habit of thinking about as Christians on a daily basis, basically. Just the reality of our eventual death and the need to have all these things in perspective, in light of the Christian faith, and in light of the promise of our salvation in Christ. And so I think it is really at the heart of Christian living to keep this in mind. You can see it in the rule of Saint Benedict, uh, the need for the monk to reflect upon his eventual death on a daily basis, to keep ever before his eyes the reality of his death and I think that we can learn from the monastic tradition in that, that this is really at the heart of Christian living, that we are to keep this in mind, and we are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ as well in our daily lives. And so I hope that this book can be helpful, not just to those who are thinking about their imminent deaths, but for the Christian faithful in general.
0: Yeah. In other words, there's the, the art of dying implies the art of living.
1: That's right. That's a very good and succinct way of putting it.
0: And I just have to give you credit for that. I didn't come up with it. That was in some of the notes that you gave me earlier. So I'm giving you credit for that line. So so any listeners, please don't think that I just said something wise. I did. That came from (laughs) Brother Columba.
1: And I didn't come up with it first either.
0: We're all drawing upon the tradition. Anyway, once again, the book, The Art of Dying, A New Annotated Translation is available on our website, ncbcenter.org. Please click on the red shop button in the upper right-hand corner. Brother Columba Thomas, thank you for joining us today on Bioethics On Air. Thanks so much, Joe. It was a privilege. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zayla. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website, please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics On Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.